Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, a.k.a. Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome to episode 88. Today I am in conversation with Duncan and Sam from the Coppice Co-op, discussing predominantly making charcoal and also how the act of coppicing promotes biodiversity. It is the third and final episode recorded at the Woodland Pioneers uh, event organised by the Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust. That's quite hard to say. Before we start the episode, though, it is with great sadness that I have to say that friend of the podcast, Sarah Pugh, has passed away. Uh, She had been fighting a particularly aggressive brain tumour. Um, she pretty much taught the entirety of Bristol uh, permaculture magic um, and enriched so many lives. Um, So she will be incredibly greatly missed Um, and just sending the the biggest of loves to all of her family and friends. It's, uh, It's quite hard to follow that. This episode, I caught up with Duncan and Sam for a chat while they were babysitting the latter half of a charcoal burn in their fancy retort. Uh, We'll discuss exactly what a retort is and delve into charcoal production, biochar, and discuss the less obvious benefits of coppicing a woodland for species biodiversity. And we touch on the joys of being in a co-op. So it was obviously a field recording. We were sat by the retort um, so there are various background noises. Uh, you might just be able to hear a, a slight roar from the retort. Um, occasionally there's a beeping alarm which notifies the guys if the retort is getting too hot or cooling too quickly. Uh, there's the occasional car. There is rain. Uh, and there's Sam's kids make a, a brief appearance. So enjoy the episode and I will be back at the end. 
I'm Duncan. Um, I work with the Coppers Co-op. Uh, yeah, I'm Sam. Um, I'm also a member of the Coppers Co-op. Um, and we've been established 10 years now, I think. Uh, yeah, 10. Right, yeah, yeah be our, we'll, we'll, we'll have been established 10 years this autumn coming. Um, and uh, we the business evolved out of a previous coppicing business, which was run by a woman called Rebecca Oakes. Um, and then it was uh, run by myself as a sole trader, kind of as an individual for a couple of years. And then um, we had the opportunity to um, set up a co-op, um, which also came around at the same time that Rebecca was wanting to sell her yard. Um, so between uh, between us, we clubbed together, um, bought the yard and established the co-op and have been running the woodland management and coppicing business as a workers co-op ever since and yeah and it's been great and um, and what sort of uh work do you undertake um specifically coppicing so that's um cutting trees down at ground level to encourage multi-stem regrowth and that's cut on a regular cycle um which provides a sustainable yield of products and also provides a mosaic of changing habitats within a woodland which has lots of wildlife benefits um, so that's our that's a woodland management approach that that we're all really interested in, and that's our kind of our core, really. Um, but we also get involved in lots of other things around that um, wider woodland management, conservation, uh, woodland management for conservation, um, and then also products, so coppice products, um, so stick based products, um, sort of small diameter um, sticks for horticulture or garden use. Um, and firewood and charcoal and craft products as well. So added value, craft products, benches, gates, cleft oak fences, that kind of stuff. And then also just whatever random bits and bobs of woodland work or commissions or whatever people ask us to do. Yeah, understand those. How many are you? Five of us. Five core members, plus we've got an apprentice um, who's who's through the Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust called Andrew, who's a star. Um, and then we have occasional workers as well and subcontractors and yeah. So we're talking specifically about uh charcoal today. Um so I mean what's the, the history of charcoal, I guess, is the, the question. The history of charcoal is, you know, as old as fire. Um you know, in terms of its its uses and, and the kind of application. Um uh the the kind of more more recent history is that uh, particularly relevant to this area is that it was a core fuel for the early industrial revolution which a lot of you know which was a hive of activity in south cumbria um and so there was loads of woodlands were managed for charcoal production um which provided fuel for um iron smelting and also provided um uh you know resources for gunpowder and chemical works and all that kind of thing so it's very closely linked into the historical landscape um and the heritage uh, of this region and and also other parts of the country as well great uh, what's the charcoal predominantly used for now so now it's all nearly all of the charcoal that we make is used for barbecue charcoal um obviously you know 
things have changed a lot since the early industrial revolution and markets have changed a lot um specifically uh, coal was introduced as a replacement for charcoal um and sort of like moving into the kind of fossil fuel era um and so charcoal production you know declined quite a lot through the 20th century um but there's been a resurgence in charcoal making uh, in the past 30 40 years and that's focused on the, the main the main easily accessible and available market is barbecue charcoal um and obviously the uk consumes a lot of barbecue charcoal but a lot of that most of that is imported so um the charcoal that we produce is local and sustainable we would argue right and that's that's fascinating i never considered that coal has you know is a replacement for charcoal Mm -hmm. i think for a long period i never even sort of could differentiate between the two like i wasn't involved enough to to sort of understand the difference yeah 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 Yeah, i mean and that that whole you know the the whole petrochemical the fossil fuel revolution in some ways or the changes that happened when fossil fuels were introduced had a massive impact on woodland management and how woodlands were managed partly the the coal replacing charcoal um but then also when when oil started becoming used and the petrochemical industry became established uh, a lot of what used to have been resources that were gotten from local woodlands so baskets packaging crates handles for tools um, you know, a massive range of stuff was steadily replaced with petrochemical plastic alternatives, which is was kind of, you know, really what changed the coppice industry, really, and and, and, and led to massive decline um, in the early 20th century. But, you know, f- since for the past sort of 40, 50 years, there's been a gradual resurgence, which is growing, you know, which is great, great and exciting times, really. Yeah, yeah. that's sort of why we're here, isn't mm. it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, okay, so um, I mean, I guess the basic question: What what is charcoal? So it's kind of it's um, it's been through a process called pyrolyzation, which is where uh, where it's it's heated to a point to a temperature beyond which it would normally combust, but it's starved of oxygen, so the combustion doesn't take place. But um, uh, but a lot of the impurities are driven off, and um, the moisture is driven off, and uh, basically, what you're left with is is the same structure, but uh, it's basically the carbon elements. Uh, so it, it's not totally pure carbon, uh, just because of the you know um, the manufacturing process. But it's as close as you likely to get, certainly within, within the scope of the technology that we have. Yeah. And so, how, like practically, how is it made? Um, so it's mainly by setting up a system where we. Um, we create heat, um, which, uh, depending on the method, um, it could involve burning some of the wood that becomes the charcoal, um, uh, and then we starve it of oxygen, which could involve the use of a like a steel cylinder with a lid, um, and um, uh, and some, a system of chimneys and ports, whereby we're able to control a certain amount of air getting in to continue the production of heat in order to convert the rest of it into charcoal i mean that that's the general principle of of how it works and there are other methods such as the retort kiln that we have behind us here where um where the, the charge wood the, the wood that's going to become charcoal is is separated from the combustion process 
uh, which is a much more efficient system. But it, it's also a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive to produce the uh, the apparatus. Mm. So um, it, it's not as widely mm. widely used at the moment. In a in a historical context, there's been sort of different different ways that charcoal have been made over the ages. So um, you know, going way back, it you know you could make charcoal just from having a fire and then chucking some earth over it at the end and 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 excluding the oxygen and then digging it out and you'd have some bits of charcoal in there. That process then kind of became a little bit more evolved by using what's called an earth clamp. So that's creating a sort of well-organized and ordered stack of wood, which then gets covered in um, bracken maybe or hay. And then that gets covered in a fine layer of soil or earth. And that's an earth burn. And that was how charcoal has been made for millennia. Right up to that early industrial revolution period, a lot of charcoal was being made in earth clamps and you can see the archaeological remains of them dotted in woodlands throughout this area. And then the next level was um, using steel ring kilns. So that's a sort of a big cylinder which you fill with wood, put your lid on, put your chimneys on, um, and then you can control the burn as it goes through. Um, and then the and then the kind of the next stage on from that is the retort kiln that Duncan was describing. <laughs> well, let's talk about the retort. It seems like the big it's the new kid in town uh, <laughs> yeah, so, there's yeah. a few it seems like there's a few kind of old uh, more experienced uh, coffees workers here kind of sniffing around working out if, mm. you know is it going to work is right it, yeah is it what it's sort of hyped up to be i guess yeah 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 that's right yeah. Uh, well why don't you explain exactly what's going on in the in the uh, kiln yeah Stove. kiln kiln retort yeah. The retort. Yeah. <laughs> the kiln is the, um, I think, well, that's what um, Rob, Robin said. The kiln, the kiln the kiln is like the kind of ring kiln stuff. Okay, it was like, he, right. got, he got a bit shirty when I called it oh, a kiln. Oh, so right. It's not a kiln, I it's a retort. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Fair enough. Well, that, right, so I'll uh, pass <laughs> it on the shirtiness. Okay. So what's going on inside the retort? <laughs> um, so um, we've got a, we've got two separate chambers. We've got one which holds the, wood which will become charcoal which we'll call the charge uh, and then we have a, a chamber underneath which is exposed to the air um, in which we can have a fire uh, and that fire could uh, can burn off cuts waste products um, um, so yeah so uh, we've been burning old pallets today um but we could use kind of you know waste scraps of coppice products and ends of old sticks and things that uh, um yeah and so um so that fire creates heat and um uh, the heat is used to heat up the charge um from from the outside so it's, it's completely separate the charge is in a, a sealed chamber so there's no there's no air getting into that so it can't combust um, even though the temperature is rising to certain, you know, quite significantly high levels. Um, to start with, uh, the charge will start will release any kind of surface moisture, um, and as the temperature rises further, um, it will start to release um, sort of cellular moisture. All that's driven up through a, a flue um, and kind of exhausted uh, into the atmosphere. Um, and uh, and then as the temperature rises again, it will start. The wood will start to release wood gases, um, and those wood gases are flammable. Um, 
So when we think that the temperature is hot enough, we will actually divert the path of those gases away from the flue that exits to the atmosphere and channel them back into the firebox underneath so that they ignite uh, and they take over the, the heating process. So instead of using the, um, instead of fueling it with wood offcuts, from this point forward, the the wood gases that are expelled from the charge are then used to um, to continue the rest of the uh, um, the rest of the process, and, and that is the heat with which the charge is turned into charcoal. So it's basically fueling itself from its own exhaust gases. That's, mm. Yeah, which is great, and that that's one of the reasons that it's considered to be very efficient um, because you're not wasting wood trying to generate heat to try and drive the process that you could be turning into charcoal so everything that goes into the retort chamber comes out just as charcoal Um, and then it's also you know environmentally beneficial because those gases if they weren't being combusted would be coming out as atmospheric pollutants or um, you know, there's a lot of methane in there, a lot, you know, which maybe come out as a, you know, gas that could contribute to climate change and, and those kinds of things. So it's a cleaner and more efficient method. Um, and so, yeah, methane is methane that is produced is turned into CO2 and as it combusts, um, which is also um, you know, a climate change gas, but it's massively less potent than methane and um, and actually is imbalanced because of. If we're using coppice wood within the um, within the charcoal system, um, the coppice wood is continually regrowing, so it's continually taking CO two out of the atmosphere. So this process puts some back, but there's a balance there, and so there isn't um, there isn't a net gain. And so, what's um, what's the difference uh, in what comes out? Um, so the, the sort of quality of the of the charcoal that comes out. Well, I mean, the quality is really high anyway, just as a product, as, mm. as, a, as, a, as a barbecue charcoal, the quality is really high and different, um, different charcoal making processes give you different purities of charcoal. So how much, uh, how, much how, how pure the carbon is in the charcoal and how much other residues and bits and bobs of kind of hydrocarbons and tars and stuff there is still in it. And charcoal from the retort comes out is very, very high in carbon. So it's a really, really good product. Um, but it also, it's not mixed in with ash and with um, small chips, small particles, um, and it, and also unconverted stuff. So a, a ring kiln, which is, you know, an alternative way of making it, everything's all heaped in the same vessel. So the charcoal... The wood that needs to be burned to generate the reaction, wood that hasn't quite fully converted, ash, dust, all that stuff is all mixed in and you've got to then sort it out and grade out. So someone jumps into the kiln and shovels it out and it goes through a sieve and everyone's wearing dust masks and it's grimy and minging and we kind of love it in a weird way, but it's pretty minging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, whereas the retort, you open the door and it's just 100% beautiful charcoal that just gets scooped straight into a bag, stapled and away it goes. So there's, there's, yeah, there's labor benefits to that as well. It's quick to unload and it's just, it's really easy, isn't it? Easy process. It's a nice working height and you don't Mm. have to get in it. You can just Mm. shovel it out because it's horizontal rather than Mm. vertical. Um, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a world of, a world of difference. Mm. Yeah. It's a good ergonomic working position. Mm. Um, 
Nice. The, uh, yeah, I saw you climb into the, the room kill. Now. It, was, mm. yeah, it was quite a leap. It was athletic, <laughs> wasn't it? I, was, I saw Duncan's move. I was like, oh, still, still got the moves. <laughs> so how is, how is charcoal different from biochar? And can we be making biochar within this process? Well, effectively, it's the same thing, really. It's just it's kind of particle size and um, biochar is, yeah, um, it's basically small particles of charcoal that have been charged in some way with um, uh, with either nutrients or uh, microorganisms um, in order to help soil health in, um, in whatever way you choose to do it. Um, but it's the same, the structure of is the same it is charcoal but, um, and it's it's the structure of biochar that's that's key really because it has charcoal essentially has the same structure as wood same internal structure which is to say loads and loads of vessels and pores and and tubes essentially running through it and there's one of those stats that's like you know a cubic centimeter of charcoal contains you know a thousand meters of pore length or something like that you know because um, it's all on such a micro scale um and but it's had all of the you know everything else taken out of it so it's just carbon with an amazingly complex internal structure mm-hmm. and that uh absorbs and releases moisture um and it also and retains moisture and it also provides a vast surface area for soil microorganisms to inhabit so that's kind of where a lot of the um fertility benefits and the soil conditioning benefits come from is is that structure um but really in order to in order to create biochar the the charcoal needs to be in firstly in small pieces um sort of small chips and then it also needs to be charged so yeah added with nutrients usually nitrogen based nutrients of some kind um and then and then left outside in it you know somewhere where it can be colonized because if you put raw charcoal into soil then the the first thing it does is suck out moisture and nutrients and soil microorganisms so it it has a kind of leaching effect initially it will balance and stabilize over time but it's much better for soils to do that kind of get that job that charging process done before you add it so biochar seems like it's it's kind of like new exciting thing in in agriculture um based on something very old um so what's is there sort of a proven track record of it um is i mean how much is really known about it there's the the historical context of the the black soils isn't it the terra preta in south america where they found um uh, sites of ancient civilization south american civilization and they found soils in the middle of the jungle that are dark black and with analysis they've discovered that they they're very very charcoal rich essentially and so the the thinking is that those civilizations were regularly creating biochar in some way or another and adding them to the soils and using that soil fertility to sustain large populations um you know in the jungle um and that's that's quite well you know that's well documented and sort of yeah there's kind of a long history behind that um i guess the the the, there's there's definitely been a modern uh, more recent kind of resurgence in interest um and a lot of 
thought and and research and speculation as to how biochar might help um, in various different ways. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not brand new, but it's still a, a, you know an emerging and uh, it's an emerging idea as to you know how how it fits into kind of soil ecology and and, and production and conversion of waste materials and things like that. Um, and you know, for us in the Coppice Co-op, it's a it's a fairly kind of newish product that we're we're feeling our way around and trying to find markets for. What about in terms of? Uh... The potential for carbon storage sequestration because my understanding is it doesn't really break down so it's mm. you're sort of creating a, a lump of carbon is that is that right we'll be back after a quick break hey there i'm mick from the mick and pat show that's right and i'm pat looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends well you're in luck We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. That's my understanding, although I'm not particularly... Um, you know, I haven't studied this in detail, but as, yeah. as far as I know, it's um, yeah, it, if it breaks down, it's over very long, very long periods. So there have people have been suggesting that it might be a that sequestration in this way by putting it into soil uh, might be a useful way of tackling climate change. Um, how realistic that is, I really don't know, um, and I think there are many, many unknowns like. Um, um, as Sam says, it's you know the effect on soil ecology of you know, large amounts over a very large area. You know, are, um, yeah, it, it, it will have some effect, and um, we may find that there are knock-on effects to to soil life and, and biodiversity that haven't been anticipated. So I think it's worth treading with caution on that, especially if we're looking for kind of global solutions. Um, I, more research is probably needed. Um, I think the that um from 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 my understanding I think the the research into the benefits of adding carbon into soil as a soil improver are fairly well established mm. but it I think it's fair to say that there's been quite a lot of fairly grand claims about the role of um biochar in climate change mitigation and as with a lot of these things the devil's often in the detail and if someone's promising you know to be able to find kind of quick fixes to climate change and and you know these things need to be yeah approached with with caution um you know there's there's so many variables around transportation and land use and kind of how long term it is and where the by where the wood is being is coming from initially you know i mean if people are deforesting you know valuable habitats in order to create biochar you know it's these kind of things are they're not always as clear-cut as they might seem so um we're you know we're we're really behind biochar and we we like you know you know it's interesting and and um it's an interesting area and it's an interesting product and it and it ties in really nicely with what we're trying to achieve with our charcoal making as part of our cooperative in as much as we're we're trying to 
produce charcoal in order to create a, 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 an economic kind of basis to our coppicing and our woodland management and to enable our coppicing and woodland management to continue and expand and to enable to generate you know rural rural livelihoods out of that work and we need to be able to generate income in order to do that so anything that we can do that adds to that which also has positive uh, wildlife or ecological or climate benefits is going to be really important to us and the and part of the reason that we make charcoal and we sell bio, barbecue charcoal is that also we are providing a, a local alternative to imported charcoal, which we also perceive to be a, a positive thing to be able to provide people with those alternatives. Nice. I think you, you touched there a little bit on the, the sort of, uh, it's sort of swinging back to coppicing now, the, the mm. diversity benefits of cop- coppicing. Mm. So how does um, coppicing aid uh diversity biodiversity as far as the yeah the management of, of woodlands is concerned um so the coppice works through what well, the coppice really is we often think of coppice as cutting down trees but actually what coppice really is is the regrowth of trees and that's what we're interested in as coppice workers um and so it's it's a cyclical process um in which habitat is constantly being created um being cyclical there isn't really a start or an end so it's like um the the difference between creation and destruction is um you know they're not really separatable so you know uh so we're causing changes in the landscape um so we cut trees and um um we clear an area which usually exposes bare ground to sunlight um and so that will allow germination of the seed bank um flowering plants to come through um so they could be um quite important species in themselves but uh, they will also provide a nectar resource for invertebrates bees and for butterflies and um, uh, and also the foliage is very important for a number of species of butterflies which are um you know threatened or endangered Alongside the flowering plants, we also get kind of grasses and um, and more vigorous growing, taller growing herbs. Um, and the regrowth, the trees will regrow from the stump, so they will be coming through at the same time as well. Uh, and bramble will start to get established, and probably in the second year, it will start to become more significant. But the trees can get higher, the grasses will get higher, and they'll start to compete with the plants. In the kind of third and fourth year, the um, if the stool density is sufficient, then we may start to get some kind of canopy closure or, you know, at least the, the kind of branches of neighbouring trees will be starting to interact. And there'll be a bit of shade being cast. And um, some of those more aggressive growing species will start to be suppressed over the next few years. And the bramble will eventually start to be suppressed. Um, and uh, eventually will um, we'll end up with a... You know, on the kind of cycles that we cut after maybe 10 years or so, um, a lot of that vegetation will be um, either suppressed back to bare ground again. The whole cycle can start again. But in that middle section, that's when it's particularly important for breeding birds, for instance. Um, and that kind of, um, yeah, kind of six to nine years kind of area. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the warblers really benefit from that kind of habitat. Uh, but after the after 10 or so years, and the, the, this, these timings 
will vary depending on the site and the soils and things like that. But after that time, you find the numbers tend, of certain species tend to just drop away. Um, uh, and so what we're actually doing by maintaining these cycles is we're providing a succession of habitats every year one single coop will be providing a slightly different habitat for a different set of species. But because we caught another coop every year, we're providing a replacement of each of those individual habitats. Um, so, so that's where diversity comes in because there's a, there's a whole, um, there's a whole mosaic there, which is constantly being renewed and maintained and species are able to move around to take advantage of the, the next bit that, that they require rather than being outcompeted. Um, but not only that, but because the because of the mosaic and all the different um, stages being present, um, you actually find that the the transition zones between habitats, they're, they're incredibly important for species that need more than one type of habitat throughout their life cycle. So moths, butterflies, that kind of thing that have a, a larval stage and then an adult stage they have very different requirements um they need a different type of habitat so yeah they need several habitats potentially um throughout in order to fulfill a life cycle and breed and produce the next generation um so yeah uh, it's a huge diversity of creatures that benefit from coppicing not everything benefits from coppicing but then i would look at coppicing as a part of a whole woodland tapestry and not necessarily something that it wouldn't be appropriate to coppice absolutely everything. It's it's just a part of the you know, it's one technique of several uh, of many. That, um, yeah, and the the you know the situation that we've got in the UK currently is that there was lots and lots and lots of coppice in the country up until you know sixty seventy years ago, and now there is vastly less. And you know ecologists and landscape managers have realised that a lot of these species that that thrive from that kind of open woodland mosaic and and the structural diversity amongst it were in decline um and so there's there there has been uh, a strong drive from a lot of conservation organizations to cut coppice and increase the amount of coppicing that's been going on which has been great um our perspective from the coppice carp as active coppice workers is that um we would like to see the the productive nature of that go alongside the wildlife benefits and for us that we see that as true sustainability mm. um, because we're generating income to allow our activities to continue and we, we try and see the ecological outputs and the and the physical resource outputs as co-products within a, a woodland management system um and and yeah, that enables us to carry on and to survive, and it and it means that we're not quite so dependent on differences in grant funding, or which you know a lot of conservation bodies are. It also just seems to be of a bit of a no-brainer because if you produce the product, you don't reduce the amount of ecological output; you just mm. gain more. Um, so we're able to supply local resources we're able to supply alternatives to imported mm. stuff we're able to supply um you know beautiful um and creative you know expressions of of you know uh, you know expressions in wood as well you know furniture and things of beauty as well as providing you know wildlife benefits so it's, you know it seems like a no-brainer to us yeah, yeah. absolutely mm. nice is there anything else you want to say charcoal 
Coppice co-op stuff. Uh, yes, yeah, Coppice Co-op is a is a workers co-op, and um, you know that's really important to us as well to have that management structure. Which is so, so essentially, we're a business, but we operate as a, as a workers co-op. So everybody that's involved in the business has equal decision making rights, essentially, um, which means there's quite a lot of meetings um, and some some there's advantages and disadvantages and some things can be a bit slower because we have to try and gain consensus in a lot of our work um but the advantages to us are a huge um and you know part of that is just bringing together five different brains and five different sets of experience and being able to problem solve and bring bring all those different ideas to the table and i think it's definitely you know it's seeing it's enhanced the business no end but having a co-op management structure yeah. I think so, and I, I think it's really important that um, um, that we all. I think you know, we can all feel equally valued within the business, uh, and we feel like, um, or perhaps I should speak for myself. You know, I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like you know, one fifth of the coffee's co-op. I don't feel like I'm working for somebody who earns vastly more money than I do. You know, we're all on the same um, pay structure. I don't, you say didn't say that already yeah. sorry um but uh yeah it's it you know we we all have a valuable contribution to make and um and that feeling of ownership is incredibly in, uh motivating really i feel like it's you know it's it's something that i love and i want to um really invest in uh, and i've never felt that quite to the same extent when working within a, a hierarchical structure um so uh, yeah i guess it's that feeling of um, investment and, and and ownership and um... on a really practical level as well it just it spreads the burden of responsibility and capacity and work you know and and and, and it means that if there is a problem we all feel collectively involved in it and it doesn't ever nothing ever lands on one person's head um which just means that you know we also it, it opens up a uh, <laughs> opens up a less stressful way of being as well because it's there's often a lot of stress involved in kind of you know small businesses that are run by an individual have got to carry all of that financial pressure and all of that where's the work coming in is it here is it there all the problems that you know can all and, you know and I, I ran the business myself for a couple of years and I I enjoyed it but I also felt that that pressure and that kind of not you know no, that that burden of carrying it all whereas actually having that collective and shared mm. has definitely made you know it makes life much more pleasant and less stressful yeah. for me anyway sure. on a personal level yeah um, I, um, I used to work for a, a co-op in bristol and mm. um yeah like the, the headaches you feel about the all the conversations you have to have but then <laughs> when you relate when you then relate that to like making all the decisions mm. on your own mm. the stress of that and mm. just, you know, the stress of having to be responsible for people's pay and yeah 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 like better mm. to have conversations yeah yeah totally i'm yeah. yeah fully agree that's right A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you so much to Duncan and Sam from the Cubs Co-op um, and to all at BH Matt for the fantastic Woodland Pioneers event. Um, I can highly recommend the book Making Charcoal and Biochar by Rebecca Oakes, who's mentioned in this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to know more about the, the topic of, of charcoal, that's an excellent um, source of information. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes. I'll also put a link to a couple of the retort manufacturers uh, of different size retorts. Uh, it is my intention to build myself a small hookway retort sometime soon. Um, so that's one of the links and I'll also put a link to the Exeter retort, the one that we were using, which is a big old expensive beast. Um, also just wanted to say that Duncan and Sam gave everyone a bag of the charcoal that we made, uh, together. Well, I say together, they showed us what we were doing. It was a complete joy to use and to cook my sausages on that charcoal, knowing that I'd made it, first of all, knowing that it had come from really lovingly coppiced uh, woodlands. But also it's got a really delightful smell to it as it burns, something I wasn't expecting. I've since found out that the charcoal you can buy from supermarkets uh, is imported quite often from as far away as Paraguay or Nigeria where it's much harder to guarantee that the um, the woodland has actually been uh, been managed in any kind of sustainable way. The imported stuff will also often have things added to it that you really don't want near your food. So yeah, seek out your local coppice charcoal supplier. Um, I've put a link to the National Coppice Federation's uh, website. On there, there is a list of charcoal suppliers and you can find one in your local region. Do that. Okay, so finally, um, because this is the last in this short coppice series, uh, I'd like to issue a challenge to the designers who are listening. I know we get a lot of people who study at CAT and other universities around the country. So the challenge is for you to create innovative ways to use coppice products in your designs and help to regrow this industry that pun was intended so this could range from quite large big diameter trees so like my house has a coppiced sweet chestnut roundwood timber frame at its center it is beautiful it is strong uh, it was sustainably sourced Maybe you can add some of that into your, your building designs. But it could also be down to a much smaller scale using the, the sort of more stick ends. Um, I saw a design this week that used a woven wattle panel on the side of a kitchen unit. Looked absolutely gorgeous. I'll stick a link to that in the show notes as well. I look forward to seeing what you all produce. Okay, that's it. Big love to you all. 
if this was your first time listening to the Building Sustainability Podcast, then do check out the other 87 episodes. And if you want to support me making more podcasts, uh, then head on over to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash building sustainability, and can support there. Okay, until next time. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.